Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong, and the Saviour's love. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for what we've seen of your love. What we saw last week when we heard of the love that you've shown for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that you've poured out your love into our hearts through your Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Please would you now, by your Holy Spirit, help us to see your love ever more clearly in Jesus and in what he has done so that we might trust in him, we might live for him, we might bring the good news about him to the world around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, imagine for a moment that you've never heard of Jesus, you've never heard of Christianity, and someone who calls themselves this thing called a Christian is explaining to you what that means. And they tell you that being a Christian means you are a follower of Jesus. And they say that they trust him. And they say that this Jesus guy is the boss of their life. And so you're thinking, well, okay, what's the next question? The next question is, well, who is this guy, Jesus, you keep talking about? And, you know, can I meet him? He sounds really important. Well, he lived 2,000 years ago in a small country in the Middle East called Israel. Well, let me get this straight, you say. You know, you stake your whole life on this guy. That seems to be what you're, you're saying to me. And he lived in a completely different country in a completely different time in history. Can you really be serious? Well, for many of us, the idea of trusting Jesus and following Jesus is so familiar that we don't see that on the face of it, it's actually a slightly odd thing, isn't it? Um, in more ways than one, especially when you think that the Christian claim is that the destiny of billions of people depends on one thing that one man did 2,000 years ago. Because, you know, really, what can a man who died 2,000 years ago have to do with me in the 20th, 21st century in London and with what can he have to do with billions of others spread across the globe, not just now but throughout history? What is that about? Well, that is the link between what we heard last week about the death of Jesus and what Paul then goes on to explore in these verses 12 to 21 in chapter 5. We heard last week that Paul emphasised the peace that we have with God and certain hope for the future, which changes everything now based on what Jesus did in the past when we trust in him. If we're trusting in him, those are the things that are true for us today. And we heard... That wonderful verse, verse 8, God shows his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then verses 9 to 11, it, it, Paul spells out the confidence that that brings when we face God's judgment. It's all because of Jesus. It's all because he died on the cross in another country 2,000 years ago. And so the question that follows then is, well, can it really be right... That the actions of one man in history somewhere else affect millions or billions of people, potentially. And Paul's answer in verses 12 to 21 is 
Yes, it is absolutely right that that is the case. But what he then says is, this isn't actually something weird or new, because actually the whole human race has already been profoundly influenced and changed by the action, first of all, of another man, by the action of Adam. And what he says is that the actions of Adam, the first human being, and Christ are so significant that they divide up the world into two groups who've been affected by what they did. Those who've been affected by what Adam did, which is, what, which is every human being who's ever lived, that's one group. It's all human beings. But then there's a subgroup of that group, those who have been affected by what Jesus did as they trust in him. That is what he's spelling out in these verses. So let's see how that works. First of all, we can see in verses 12 to 14, Adam's sin brought sin and death for everyone. You can see that on the back of the notice sheet. You can see that on the screen. So here is the first man whose actions had an effect on the whole of humanity. This is not the time to start worrying about... Um, creation and evolution and all those kinds of questions. We had an evening about all of that a few weeks ago. Um, in fact, whatever you think about exactly how God made the world and what that involved, there would have been a first human being. And that's what the Bible tells us. There was a first human being and his name was Adam and it tells us the relationship between him and the God who made him. So verse 12 just as sin entered the world through one man. Okay, now what is that talking about? How did sin enter the world through one man? Well, it's talking about what happened in the Garden of Eden. That's what we heard in Genesis chapter 3 in the first reading. Adam and Eve were given all the trees in the garden to eat from and to enjoy. And that part's often left out when we think about what happened in the Garden of Eden. But they had all the trees to eat. It's a wonderful place. It was... Uh, they could enjoy everything except to remind them that they were creatures and not the creator. There was one tree that they were not to eat of, and that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because eating from that tree, that particular one tree out of all the other trees that they could eat from in the garden, but eating from that tree would make them like God. That's what God said to them that they would be then deciding what is good and evil. The whole point of putting a restriction on that tree was for them to realise we're not in charge of deciding what is right and wrong. That's God's job. And so when he says you can't eat from this tree, then we need to trust him and not just take matters into our own hands. We need to depend on him. And that's what a creature is. It's one who depends on the God who created them. And God warns them. He warned Adam, in fact, in the day that you eat of that tree, of that tree, you will surely die. But beginning of chapter 3, we heard the reading, the serpent, the snake, comes to Eve and twists God's words and makes God out to be a tyrant. You know, forget about, you know, there's no mention of all the other trees that they were given to eat. It's just focus on this one thing they've been told they can't do. Get rid of this tyrant who is restricting you so much. And so Eve listens to the snake 
She eats from the tree and she encourages Adam to do the same. And Adam at that point is sinning because it was to him that God had given the commandment in chapter 2, before Eve was created at the end of chapter 2. So there's that sense in which it's his responsibility at that point. But instead of trying to stop Eve from falling into sin, he just joined in and he rebelled against the God who'd created him. And so Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. Their relationship with God is broken. And that day they die spiritually as they're cut off from God outside the garden And in due course, they also die physically. So, that's what Paul is summing up here in verse 12. Death entered the world through the sin of Adam, as Paul, um, that's what he says, isn't it, in, in verse 12. But then he goes on, because of that, death came to all people. So it wasn't just death for Adam and Eve, it was then death for all of their descendants outside of the garden, because all sinned he says now this whole thing that we're talking about is sometimes called original sin that's the kind of name that um, the theologians give to it it's the idea that what adam did affected the whole of the human race after him with the result that we his descendants are born as sinners because he was a sinner And we, as his descendants, are born deserving his condemnation, even before we've done anything at all. Now, you listen to that, I bet something inside you says, that's not fair. Why is that right? We live in a world that doesn't like that kind of teaching. Um, We're very individualistic about our actions. Although actually, when we stop and think about it, we do understand that what a team captain does can affect everyone else on their team what the leader of a whole nation a president a prime minister a government what those actions can affect everybody living in that country so in one sense we do understand that the actions of one can stand for and affect everyone and that is what is going on here and so we need to understand kind of what it means but Even then, although we might instinctively still kind of think, yeah, but is that really right or fair? If we're honest, it also chimes with our experience. You know, because we know, don't we? We we know we don't ever have to teach babies or children to think only of themselves. You have to sit down and say, right, this is how to lie. Okay, let me me teach you, young child, because up to this point, you've only been telling the truth. What you really need to do now is learn how to lie. You don't have to do that, do you, with anybody? No one has to say, this is how you say no to your parents or whatever. We just do it instinctively. And sometimes, you know, sometimes we talk and we say, we talk about the innocence of children. Now, in one sense, if we mean innocent in the sense of just not understanding what the world is like, not understanding how evil the world can be as clearly it can, then okay, there's, there's a sense in which you can understand what, that, what might be intended by using that kind of phrase. But if we mean innocent in the sense of never doing anything wrong from the earliest age, well, it, it strikes me that people who say that haven't spent much time with toddlers. 
Now, I think perhaps in a kind of liberal society, we shy away from saying this kind of thing because we think it will also mean going round telling children in particular and everybody that they're terrible sinners all of the time. And actually with that, people then have stories of things that were said to them in their childhood. So I don't know if you know the comedian Paul Merton from Have I Got News For You on the, te- on the telly. And he was talking in an interview a few years ago about his education in a school run by nuns. And he said there was one Irish nun in particular, and he, he described, and she was, she, was always, she was dressed all in black with the white band, and he said she was like an angry pint of Guinness. As again and again, she, she put him down and humiliated him for his failure to keep the rules, you know, many of which were kind of petty and silly rules. Now, you are a sinner. Dreadful things. And I, I think for many people, when, when they think, what, what, what they think when Christians talk about original sin is that it's that kind of self-righteous going around telling everybody how dreadful they are that is sort of entailed in using that kind of phrase. But that, that is missing the point. That is moving from an accurate diagnosis of what human beings are like to a really terrible treatment plan. And the reason we know that it's a terrible treatment plan for the accurate diagnosis of the fact that we're all sinners and we're born that way is that Paul explicitly then goes on to rule that out. And that's why he talks about the law in verses 13 and 14. So he talks about the law, but why does he do that? Because he wants to counter the idea that the solution to this big problem of us all being sinners is just to keep the rules, to keep the law. And he's saying it's not the law itself which makes you a sinner because that would mean there would be a chance of saving yourself by changing your ways and becoming a law keeper instead of a law breaker. And that is the self-righteous view of the world. And we spent a lot of time when we were looking at Romans 1 to 4 last year thinking about these two ways of looking at the world. And this self-righteous view of the world, it's that that leads people like, you know, the angry pint of Guinness or whatever it is, to condemn others while simultaneously claiming to be right with God themselves. And so the dynamic is saying, I'm a law keeper, look at me keeping the rules, and you're a law breaker, look at how dreadful you are. But in contrast to that, he says, even before the law was given to Moses, death reigned because Adam sinned, even those who didn't sin by breaking the law. So he's saying there's a more fundamental problem than whether you keep the law. It's about the fact that we're born inheriting the sin and the condemnation that Adam deserves. Now we also, of course, sin ourselves. It's not that Adam's sin is the only thing we deserve God's judgment for. We deserve God's judgment for our own sin too. But it all starts with Adam and the result is verse 14 death reigns death reigns that is the irony of sin of turning our backs on the God who made us of taking matters into our own hands of thinking we're the best judges of what is right and wrong 
The irony is we think, I want to be in charge. And we fear listening to God because we think that will mean that we're kind of under a tyranny and I want to be in charge and just be able to decide what I think is right and wrong. But all we're doing is surrendering control to slave master sin and his sidekick death, who then re- who reigns over us relentlessly. Because the fact that death is in the world is a sign that human beings are sinners. That's how it started. And death then picks us off one by one. Now again, in 2022, we don't like to admit that death reigns. We want to find ways to defeat death. We want to find ways to prolong life as long as possible. And of course, COVID has shown us that. It's very hard for human beings to face up to the fact that actually everyone dies eventually. Now, there's a film on Netflix that's well worth uh, watching called Don't Look Up. And it's about what happens when a comet is about to hit the earth and kill everybody. And it's meant to, actually, it's meant to be a parable about climate change disaster. But it could equally be about the coming of God's judgment. At one point, it has the, the president, who's played by uh, Meryl Streep, there she is, uh, it has the president reacting in shock to the idea that they need to tell the world that a comet is coming. And she says, you cannot go around saying to people that there's a 100% chance that they're going to die. That is nuts, she says. But of course, and we know when we hear that, we know that's funny because we know, actually, that that is the world we live in. The world we live in is one where death reigns because Adam sinned first of all. And maybe we don't like that, maybe we bristle against that, but the whole point of what Paul is saying here is if we don't like the idea of what Adam did affecting the whole human race, because that's the first thing he wants to say, and if you don't like that everything about us depends on the actions of that one man, well, you have no right to benefit from what Jesus did either. That's the logic here. That is his point. Can you see that? That's what he's saying. Understand, just as the sin of Adam affected everyone, so now let him tell us about another man who did something that has the potential to affect anyone. And that's the second and final thing we see. Jesus' death brought grace and life for anyone. So verses 15, it should be 15 to 21. What Jesus did is both like and unlike Adam, says Paul. So we benefit from what Jesus did like we suffer from what Adam did. But see the difference, verses 15 and 16. Instead of sin and death from Adam, we get grace and life from Jesus. Grace is the free gift of God's not guilty verdict, even when we deserve the opposite. And Paul's point is not simply that Adam and Christ are similar because they're both team captains. 
So that's where it starts, it's sort of saying, here's, here's one captain of all, all human beings, Adam. Here's another one, a new humanity, Jesus. Look at, look at him. But then he's saying, look how much better Jesus is than Adam. So he says, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? How much more? So this is the difference between a demolition expert and a master craftsman. I don't know if you're into gardening. There's a big difference. Isn't there? I'm, I'm definitely a demolition expert in the garden when I can sort of get round to it. You know, I'll get the tools out. I will hack things back. I will pull things down. But if you ask me to actually craft a garden and plant things, that is a whole new level of skill, which I'm afraid is quite beyond what I'm capable of. It's the same with other things, isn't it? Because anybody can be a demolition expert. That's the point. Anybody can tear things down. It starts when you're a toddler and you trash your older brother or sister's Lego models. And think about this. You know, it takes generations to build a cathedral like Notre Dame in Paris, for example. It takes just a spark to start a fire that brings it all crashing down. Do you see the point? That is the point of his contrast here. How much better is the one who builds than the one who tears down? How much better is Jesus than Adam? And he says it again in verse 16. The gift of God is so much better than what Adam did because it took one, just one sin to bring condemnation, but the gift that God gives follows many, an uncountable number of sins. Look at how much grace there is in Jesus. That is amazing grace. And the result, verse 17, is the end of that reign of death. So if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will what? What is going to replace that reign of death? You would expect that what he's going to say is that it's replaced by a reign of life. But actually, look what he says. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? What's he saying? He's saying it's those who receive what Jesus has done, those who are in Christ because they trust him, it's them who reign in the place of death. In fact, reigning over the world is what Adam was supposed to do in the first place. That was the job he was given by God. Rule over the world and subdue it, is what God says to him in Genesis chapter 1. And now, in Christ, those who trust in him get to do that. Death will not win. That's the point. But the proof of that isn't some sort of thing where we now just say life Reigns. Actually, the proof of the fact that death will not win is individual Christians and the church living with Jesus as Lord wherever God has put them. That is what this means. And that is huge when we actually think about our lives here and now today. Because so often we're on the back foot and as if we, we feel like we're trespassing in a world that belongs to the secularists who don't believe in God and they're quite happy with that, they're quite happy without him. 
and we're kind of trespassing on that territory. But the reality is, actually, no, death reigns over all of that. And nobody out there has any answer to that. Not the doctors, not the government, nobody can do anything about the reign of death. But this world belongs to the king. And if we're trusting in him, we're on his team. And then it becomes our job to be the opposite of death in our homes and our workplaces and our schools and everywhere else in between. You see, we reign in life when we bring the good news that Jesus has conquered death to our friends and our neighbours and our colleagues and our families. So what's going on at the moment? Our world is shattered by war in Ukraine, by cost of living and high energy prices and the future of the United Kingdom and whether we can trust politicians and you know all the things one after another on the news there's your proof that death is reigning it's right there isn't it and yet in Christ there is hope because Jesus has defeated death and so in him, we can point forwards beyond the darkness to when Jesus will return. And we can start living that life of the world to come here and now by serving those around us and loving them practically so that they want to know what is the reason for the hope that you have. And so Paul then summarises what he said in verses 18 to 21 as he finishes. And we'll do the same as we finish. The structure of these verses as he brings it all together is a little bit strange, if you notice. Back in verse 12, he started a thought, but that sentence doesn't finish, does it, at the end of verse 12? It's quite hard to read, actually, because of that. It, it, it finishes halfway through a thought, and then he breaks off and goes on and says something else in verse 13. But what happens then is he's, he's gone off and he's explained all this stuff about... Um, how sin came into the world and then he comes back in verse 18 and he picks up the thought that he'd started um, back in verse 12 just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people so that's sin of Adam so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people so that's what Jesus did that's what we've been seeing he's summarizing it and then he says it in a, in a slightly different way in verse 19. Adam's sin brought sin and death for everyone. Jesus' death brought grace and life. And then we see again that point about the law in verse 20. The law doesn't help you. Don't think that you can get through God's judgment just by being a good person. Don't think all this only applies to kind of proper sinners like those people over there, as it were, but not me. Now, the law only serves to show up where people are going wrong, like an impossible exam paper that nobody can pass. But it's not all bad news, because where sin increased, because the law only serves to show how we can't be good, grace increased all the more. So there is always more grace for sinners who ask for it, who go to, to God and say, yeah, I have messed up again. And I have committed sin that just shows how I, I belong to Adam. And I'm really on his team. 
And look what I've done again in my life this week, in the way that I've treated you as God, my Heavenly Father, in the way that I've treated those around me. It shows I'm really on Adam's side. But in Christ there is grace. And as we trust in him, we find we've been given a new identity. And we're now on his team. So that just as death reigned before because of one man's sin, so grace will reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that means that this offer of life that we keep hearing about is open to anybody, whether we are a kind of law keeper or a law breaker, whoever we are, in other words. Whether society would look at us and think, yeah, you're doing really well, or whether we fear they might look at us and think you're doing really badly for whatever reason. Actually, this offer of life is for anybody. Because everyone has been affected by what Adam did, but anyone can transfer to Christ's new humanity. And then through that new humanity, he's going to change the world. So can it be true then? We started with that question. Can it really be true that one man's actions 2,000 years ago in another place, at another time, another culture, can it really be true that that can change the world? Well, yes. In fact, two men changed the world. One made it bad, but the other, through his death, not only undid what Adam had done, but started a new humanity that anyone could be part of that's going to change everything. And the implications of that are then going to be unpacked in chapter 6 onwards. But for now, Paul is inviting us to come to Christ in the face of sin and death that reigns over this world, that controls us, that we have no answer to. To come to Christ and then to be those who are able to reign over a lost world living in fear with the good news that Jesus' death changed everything forever. So let's pause and reflect on our own response to that before we come to the Lord's table. Father God, we do mourn the brokenness of the world that we live in, broken by sin and death, and the effects of that that we see all around us all the time, the effects of that that we see in our own lives. We thank you for Jesus, who as a second Adam, who obeyed, where Adam disobeyed. Thank you that through him we have 
new life and hope. That death has been defeated through what Jesus has done. That sin no longer has a hold on us because we're forgiven, not condemned. We pray then that as we come to Jesus, as we trust in him, that you would use us to do what human beings were always supposed to do, to represent you to the world, to bring the good news of hope in Christ to a lost world around us. As we go out into this week, as we go to our workplaces, as we go to our homes and our families, as we meet with friends, as we trust in Christ, might we reign in life and bring that good news of the one who's defeated death. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.